Sharon is like, Sharon. you know, the way uh, you pronounce it. But in America, Sharon. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Michael Omens, And today I'm excited to bring you a conversation with Michael Sharon. Michael is an entrepreneur, investor, and product person. He's currently the co-founder and CEO at Taika, making beverages that fuel creativity. He was the first mobile product hire at Facebook and subsequently led their mobile product development and strategy for more than five years. We talked about his path from South Africa to the US, his career-defining role at Facebook, and what he's been up to since. Here is episode 15, Creative Monkeys. Hey, Michael. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We are sitting here in a beautiful spring San Francisco evening. I'm thankful for you to be here today. I think it's going to be exciting for people to hear the windy road of stuff that you've taken. You currently run a beverage company called Taika. It's true. But you are very much a classic tech person. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, sure. Classic tech-ish. Classic tech dude. Tech-ish. Right here. (laughs) Tech bro. No longer in training, sadly. No longer in training. Uh, no, you've had a varied career in different technology companies, but right now you run a beverage company called Taika, which is a really exciting company, in my opinion. Disclaimer, I invested in this company. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's incredibly exciting, even more exciting once you've tasted them. Let's start from the beginning. How did you get into your career? I like how you introduced me by saying it was definitely not a straight line from <laughs> growing up, imagining he wants to be a doctor one day and suddenly boom there it happens so yeah i don't know how i got into my career you wanted to be a doctor no okay 100 not um <laughs> but great start y- y- i have no idea how i got into my career and i really always admired people that i would go to school with who knew exactly what they wanted to be and then left school and did the thing that they said that they were going to do and it's cool to like have an idea of what you want to do and go out and get there and get it. I did not do that. I came more from the school of how do you learn about interesting things in the world? So starting off in the beginning, I was born in Israel. Technically, I'm Israeli, but really, I spent 25 years in South Africa. So I'm mostly South African. But yeah, how do you figure out what you want to do? How do you decide where you want to go? And As a child, one of the things that was just huge passion was reading. And I remember the very first book I read was The Hobbit. And I was so obsessed with the characters. So I was really into books. And actually, one of my first jobs was working at a library. And working at a library was just like the best job ever because I could sit there, be surrounded by books. I could literally rent as many books as I want. And I got first dibs on whatever came in. But one of the things I took away from books and mostly from reading the dust jacket and the biography of the different authors in the back of the book is a lot of the authors did not have straight paths. A lot of the authors just did a bunch of random shit. They like worked on fishing vessels and then they, I don't know, moonlighted at a TV station and then they were script writers for a little while and they did a whole bunch of shit that wasn't necessarily the thing that they were doing now and wasn't necessarily the thing that got them to be, I don't know, fiction author or nonfiction or whatever it is. That sort of made an impression on me. And more than anything, it gave me permission to play around and like do a bunch of stuff. And I ended up, I wouldn't say follow my passions, but I ended up following things that I thought were interesting. But When I went to university, South Africa, first of all, this is South Africa back in like the mid-90s. South Africa back in the mid-90s was a shit show. In 1991, Nelson Mandela's released from prison. Everybody's rejoicing, whatever. Inside South Africa, it's a disaster. Like, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? And basically, the most likely outcome is that there's going to be a civil war. Things were a little bit crazy. My first year in high school was when he was released. And 1994 was the first democratic elections in South Africa when I was 17 years old and was able to vote for the first time, which was super cool. It was amazing. It was like hugely impactful for the entire country. And so that was fun. And that was a note of like cautious optimism. But up until that point, people are just really 
depressed and miserable and upset about everything. 1995, graduated from high school and was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. A few things influenced my life choices at this stage. Number one is I had a band. And so my band was super cool. I loved my band. <laughs> we were this like underground grungy band in the vein of Jane's Addiction or Pearl Jam or Red Hot Chili Peppers, all three of those combined. And that was, we were going to be the biggest band in the world. And so that definitely like influenced some of my choices. But going to university, I remember like looking at the different careers and the career options. And there's way fewer options than you have in the US, like way fewer. You can do law, you can do some English, you can maybe do some psychology, bit of computer science, mathematics. This is about it. Maybe there's a few other things on the side. And so because I was this child that had been raised on books and stories of authors that didn't do one thing and didn't have straight lines, I was attracted to a lot of different things. And I was interested in a lot of different things. I remember during my course and I took computer science because I was really into computers. And then I took mathematics because you were forced to take that because of computers. And then I took astronomy because I love staring up at the stars. And then I took English literature because I loved reading books. This was just like the weirdest set of classes and people hadn't really seen this kind of thing. But yeah, that, that was it. And then I spent most of the first year playing my band and trying to avoid going to class and blowing up in the band sense, <laughs> which didn't quite happen, but it, it was very exciting. Okay, so we're in university. Your band is the most important thing. You have this eclectic set of courses that you're doing. Yep. How did you go from there to ending up at NYU? Great question. So this was, this was my like hot ones moment. So here's the straight line. <laughs> here's the straight line version. Year one in university, English, astronomy, computer science, mathematics. Year two in university, English, psychology, law. Plot twist. <laughs> I end up graduating with a degree in English and law. I think there was some French in there on the side, but please don't speak French to me. I, I had a good time doing that. I left university. My band had sort of broken up by this stage. From there, I started thinking about like what I wanted to do, and it helps to understand the time frame. So I graduated in 1999. 1999 in the US is the height of classic web 1.0. Yeah. It was the boom. Yeah. And we had nothing like it in South Africa because everybody is skeptical shit. Venture capital just didn't exist back then in South Africa. The only South African company that actually did well in Web 1.0 was this company called Thought, T-H-A-W-T-E, which sold digital certificates. But apart from that, like Web 1.0 boom sort of mostly skipped South Africa by. I mean, there were web development companies and whatever, but sort of sort of skipped us by. I was just like looking at what was going in the US and was just like fascinated by it. Whatever was happening in San Francisco, New York, like Silicon Alley, like Razorfish was all hot back then. I was super excited about that. I joined a really fun strategic internet consultancy, which was trying to be like Razorfish and worked there for a little while until they, they laid me off running strategy consulting for them. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do next? What is next in life? Where can I go? South Africa at that stage was starting to feel really small. And so I was really just trying to get out and go somewhere. And the U.S. still looked incredibly appealing and attractive. And I found out about these courses, two programs in particular that were really exciting for me. One was at the MIT Media Lab, where it was people doing things with technology that were not what I was seeing in South Africa. Like South Africa, you would go to university, do your computer science degree, do your applied maths course, and then go work at a fucking bank. If you were super smart and really bright, they'd be like, oh, you could be a quant. You could analyze risks for insurance companies. And that's, that was, again, the dead end that I just didn't want to go down. What I was seeing from the MIT Media Lab and from this other program in New York called ITP, the Interactive Telecommunications Program, was that people were taking technology and fucking with it. Like it was not about, oh, okay, you have a spreadsheet. Your spreadsheet needs to actually be in service of this investment fund. And like, that's all you can do with it. 
you know, it was people doing all sorts of like fucking weird shit, making music and doing weird graphics and stuff like that. And so that's what I got excited about. Ended up putting together an application for MIT and NYU and then got accepted to NYU shortly after I got laid off from the strategy consulting job. And so everything just seemed to fit. And they also gave me a scholarship. It was a crazy time because the currency in South Africa had just become the most volatile currency in the world for many years. I basically had enough money in South Africa to put a down payment on a house and then ended up taking that and converting it and showed up in the US for grad school with like three grand total. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, net worth of three grand is going to be amazing. That was how I started at ITP. Had an amazing time. Did a whole bunch of weird stuff, mostly focused on making custom synthesizers. And yeah, graduated from ITP. And one of the projects that I was working on ended up being the basis for my first company. That company was called Socialite, as in social plus light bulb. It was this mobile social location-based application. It was, you know, like this. Wait, what year is this? This is 2005. Yeah. That is early. Yeah. And so it was It was a time when people were sitting around tables and going like, what should we call these things? Molo Soso. Like Soso means social software. Soso Lomo. <laughs> like basically it's a combination of like mobile, social, location. And everybody could see that there was something there, but nobody quite knew what to do with it. Socialite was one of the projects we were working on at school. Another one was called Dodgeball by my dear friend Dennis Crowley and Alex Reynert. I actually spent some time moonlighting for them and then they were swallowed up and eaten by Google before anything really happened. So I went off and we forged this bold path to make the future of location-based mobile social software. And that was 2005. By 2007, when the iPhone came out, we realized that our timing was really fucking off. And everything is about timing. Yeah. So but that was in your Twitter bio for the longest time. I think it's I think it still is. Ti- timing still timing is. is everything. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. Nice. That's what the drummer in my band used to tell me all the time. Timing is it's, everything. It's why I was banned from drinking before shows. Banned from the band. <laughs> banned from the band. What was your instrument? Were you a t- guitarist, bass player? I was a lead guitarist. Lead guitarist. Lead guitarist. That's an important one. <laughs> <laughs> What ended up happening to Socialite? Socialite, funnily enough, was acquired by a daily deals company, but that was after my time. I was at Socialite until around 2008. We pivoted from being this kind of like early stage mobile social location play where the market just really wasn't there because there weren't enough people with phones that had GPS embedded to being like a mobile ads platform. And at that stage, I switched off and was like, I want to make a consumer thing. Funnily enough, I'd had a friend who joined this little startup out in the Bay Area about a year before who kept instant messaging me on AIM about how I should come and talk to them because nobody was working on mobile. And so that little startup was called Facebook. I ended up joining in 2008 as the first mobile product hire. And it was phenomenal. What a fun ride. Um, this was the Facebook with the uh, the nine grid of icons or what was it like? Yeah. Three icons across. This, this was, so by the time I started was September 2008. And the first version of the iOS app had just been released in the app store. But really the big app for Facebook at that stage was BlackBerry. Oh, crazy, nice. right? If you just think of the way the world is now, it's sort of like lopsided priorities. But yeah, BlackBerry was really big. Mobile web was pretty big. SMS was also really big. I was a huge fan of the SMS interface. Literally, you could get Facebook through SMS. You could get updates from people. And this is back in the day when people had 20, 30 friends on Facebook. It was great. Worked on mobile for like five and a half years at Facebook on everything and anything, iPhone apps, iPad apps, and then iOS apps when it became iOS. Built the first Android app, actually checked in and wrote a bunch of code on the first Android app, which took the whole site down, which was uh, very entertaining um, (laughs) way back in 2009, probably less entertaining these days. 
had an amazing time, worked with so many great people. You know, I just think it was really a seminal moment in the formation of a lot of tools and interfaces and experiences, user experiences that people not take for granted and that people think of as foundational, for better or for worse. Then in 2014, I went over to the dark side. I went over to run the Pages group and Pages was under ads at that stage. Pages was a phenomenal experience. Worked with amazing people, got a front row seat into one of the giant revenue engines on the internet. And I was really excited to work on Pages because I had this idea that it was I was going to be able to resurrect a lot of the ideas that we had at my startup. I was really excited about working with a lot of small businesses, creating tools that democratize the playing field for them. And yeah, real privilege to have gotten the opportunity to contribute to helping really small businesses. Like a lot of what we did benefited the small businesses that use those tools every single day. Mid-2016, took a break from Facebook. I was there for eight years, what they call a double tour of duty in Silicon Valley. I just didn't know what I was going to do with myself. To me, it's really intriguing for you to jump from working at your startup, leaving that startup, then eventually finding your way over to the Bay Area. I'd love to dig in a little more into that Facebook time. What was your first big lesson after you joined the company? Yeah, I remember like my first day, I was just sitting around like, basically second-guessing myself. I was like, why am I here? Why am I working at this job for the man? Bear in mind, I had like negative net worth at this stage. I had negative net worth for many years, and this is the first real job I had in America that paid me a salary. So I think that was clearly why I was there. But day one, I was really having a lot of doubts. And I was in this weird place. I did not know why I was there. And frankly, I was believing a little bit of the East Coast rhetoric around Facebook. The East Coast rhetoric around Facebook, which all my friends were very eager and gleefully told me, was that Facebook was this company where you would go to throw sheep at your friends. If you weren't around Facebook in the early days, throwing sheep at your friends was one of the apps, one of the very first apps on platform. Facebook platform first came out in 2007. There was like no apps. So people basically tended to copy a lot of what Facebook did and made like variations on top of it. Poke was an early Facebook app that was pretty fun. You could send somebody a poke and they would like get poked and send something back to you. And it's just very family friendly fun for university college students. And yeah, throwing sheep was just the big one that took off at that stage and was a variation of poke and was basically like a glorified notifications app. That is what all my friends in New York told me I was going to go do and work for. And so that day I was thinking about that and I'd met a whole lot of people during the interview process that was super smart and I was very excited about working with them. But for some reason that that day I was just second guessing everything and feeling really dark. And then there's a part of orientation at Facebook and Chris Cox, who's the chief product officer now and for most of the time that I've been at Facebook, walked in and he does the kind of like orientation, like basically he gives the answer to why. And at that stage, Facebook is talking about being more open and connected and really connecting the world. And during that talk, I finally got it and I learned the lesson and I internalized it. And I was like, these guys aren't here because they got lucky, that this is the product of hard work. I think the get lucky narrative is something you hear a lot when people see a service or people see a product that goes stratospheric. Overnight success, nine, nine years in the making. Exactly. Yeah. It's like 10 years of grind and like, boom, suddenly you succeed. That's the part that I really got and really internalized. And it was such an interesting company because I came from an eight-person startup in New York, and the eight-person startup moved much slower and was way more bureaucratic than Facebook was. And Facebook, when I joined, was like around 400 people. I think there's a whole lot of myths around speed and success and like impact on the world, and there's just a ton of bullshit around that. And like one of the abiding myths is that a small startup can move much faster than a large company. At that stage, Facebook moved so incredibly quickly. The mantra back in those days was move fast and break things. The idea is if you weren't moving fast enough to break things, 
then you weren't moving fast enough. And if you were moving fast enough to break things, you could continue moving fast enough to fix things as well. And so that was the mantra of the day and it was amazing. I had two engineers that I worked with on my mobile team. That was the entire mobile team in 2008 when I joined. There were a lot of really great kind of like BD people on the product side, it was super, super limited. But you'd be able to like sketch out ideas very quickly and the next day your engineer like built the entire thing. And so we were able to move very quickly and that continued for a very long period of time. It's still, I think, one of the things that Facebook did incredibly well and probably still does incredibly well. There's many lessons that I learned while working there, but my first big lesson was never underestimate the power of hard work and smart people. So this was day one. This is your day one lesson, right? <laughs> what? Day, day one, hour one. Yeah, day one, hour one lesson. What was the first time you ran into a wall? First time I ran into a wall. I mean, there were lots of walls. Actually, the first one, it was maybe not necessarily a wall. Anyway, it was in my first three months there. The mobile website was just incredibly slow. It was simple. It was not a lot of code. It was not a lot of, I don't know, each page was maybe like 150, 300K. It was tiny, but it was slow as shit. It was just like painfully, painfully slow. I did a deep dive into why this was slow. And I realized that they weren't gzipping the content. Gzip is going to compress everything by 11 to 1, mm -hmm. specifically for text content. And then boom, mobile website, super fast, no problems. So, so that the, wasn't really a wall. That wasn't, I mean, <laughs> that, that sounds like your first success story, right? That wasn't really a wall. So instead of doing something good for the product, when did you, do, when did you mess up the product? Well, so I don't know, 2010, 2011, there was this really sexy idea that captivated the brains of a lot of engineers there. And that sexy idea was that everything should be the web. And why is it sexy? Well, Facebook at that stage had like one iOS engineer, like one native iOS engineer. It had three or 400 web engineers working on all the website stuff. Was the one iOS engineer doing all the screens or was it just like he mobile, was doing, mobile web screens? He was doing all of the screens wow. for, for the iPhone app. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. We had different engineers for mobile web, but he was doing all of the screens for the iOS app. And everybody would keep trying to get features into the app. And he was a stickler for quality and it was really difficult to get features into the app. And so me and him and the team got a reputation for being obstructive because we cared about the user experience of whatever the 20 million people using the iOS app at that stage. I remember there was a hackathon and one of the engineers basically created a web view and then threw the mobile website into a web view and then went and showed it and was like, look how cool this is. Yeah. This is the entire app. Like yeah. we don't really need anything else. That was uh, pretty bad. That got everybody really excited at all the highest levels of the company. I was really not excited about it at all because I loved native iOS and I knew the WebView performance was terrible, but it was sort of this like sweet technical challenge from the engineering perspective where you, if you could just like make the JavaScript a little bit smaller or like create a bootloader or there were so many interesting things to be done to make this work and to fulfill this vision that people lost sight of the user experience. And this was really, I would say, like a huge mistake on Facebook's part. And like, listen, I was culpable. I did not, was not really that excited about this, but I was there. We all worked on it, but it was pushed through by Mark because he just loved this idea of like not having to hire native engineers and being able to reuse all of the PHP web engineers we had to build all of the features in mobile. Nobody remembers now, but Facebook was a giant disaster. But the, everyone remembers what came after, which were these remembers. beautiful mobile, like these native apps, right? Like sure, sure, sure. But, you know, Facebook was such a disaster. It was responsible for some of the biggest stress mm -hmm. in many people's lives. Yeah, My sure. life, for sure. There's different classes of bugs at Facebook, and there is a certain class of bug called an Unbreak Now, a UBN. Mm -hmm. And the Unbreak Now class of bug, you need to fix this bug now. Nobody goes home until this bug is fixed. If it requires that we re-roll the entire site and push an entire new version 
of the code out to everything, that's how we do an unbreak now. And this is how Facebook managed to keep the quality of the code high doing web. But when it came to mobile, specifically native apps, it's totally different. On yeah, iOS, yeah, the Apple cycle, it's everything. the App Store. Everything is sort of gatekeepered by Apple. And so there was this idea that Facebook would free from this gatekeeping. We'd be able to launch features without having them get reviewed by Apple. It was so sweet, very tempting. It was the forbidden fruit. And it was a shit show. We would have unbreak now bugs almost every single day. We would have really terrible bugs where people would open their phone and newsfeed would show up and you see a flicker of your newsfeed. You're like, fuck, this is great. And then would just like flash and disappear and then reload. For the first five years, the app stores existed. Facebook was the biggest app on iOS. You know that saying, with enough eyes, all bugs are shallow? Have you heard that saying? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's sort of like an engineering saying, uh-huh. right? Given enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. Well, given enough people, all bugs will be surfaced, basically. Yeah. And so the people running literally the biggest app on mobile and iOS and on Android, we saw every single bug. We saw every single edge case. We saw a lot of weird shit. We also bricked a lot of devices and forced Apple to actually make iOS much, much better. We could talk about that as a wall, but <laughs> basically... There were a bunch of different times where we did basic things that were allowed by the operating system. Yeah. And it turns out it took so long that people thought their devices had been completely bricked. Oh, wow. It was one version. It was like, I don't know. It was like upgrading to the 4.0 release. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with the 4.0 release? It's a brand new design. We're like so excited about it. It's so sexy. What are we going to do? We're going to wipe the folder. Mm-hmm. We're going to just delete the folder of the, all the previous releases Because, of course, in the previous release, we just had a cache that kept adding images and would never throw it away. Yeah. And so this is where people would complain about their Facebook apps being too big. And so the 4.0 release, we're like, let's wipe the slate clean. Yep. It's going to be so sexy. Small APK, IPA, whatever it was. Yep. Yep. Anyway, it was a bug in iOS where you would start, open a directory with, I don't know, 30,000 files and start to delete them one at a time. It probably would have been deleted within two weeks, but people definitely want to get their phone to respond. What was that experience like going from one service that has surfaced on two different platforms to effectively having to ship like a native Android and a native iOS app in the span of, my guess is it's Facebook, a couple months? Yeah, so we, we started work on the project in November or December of 2011. And then we eventually got it out in like the middle of 2012. Was this the moment, by the way, the cultural moment that was like, everything's mobile now? There was a little bit before that, but that was definitely one of the catalysts. I think it's really hard to change culture. And so when you change culture, you have to teach people what they should be doing and give them markers and like signposts and guidelines on this new road that they're traveling on. And so the first part of this was, yeah, you're right. I, Facebook was a giant piece of shit. And internally, everybody realized that. Corey Andreco was actually one of the engineering leaders who really helped spearhead the new kind of like iOS that we worked on. And it was basically like a command end new project like, let's just start from scratch experience without any of the legacy. We had phenomenal engineers working on it. It was a very small team. It was like, sort of like 10 engineers, I think. And then by the end of it, we might have been closer to 20 with engineers and designers and all the rest. But just was, like, was this the sofa folks or was this someone else? Yeah, we had some sofa folks inside there. So Yawn and JV and Hugo specifically worked on this. Yeah, it was just like, Super stressful. One of the most stressful experiences of my life. We were working 18-hour days. We, myself and Greg Novick was engineering manager who was, he'd just been pulled off his work. Awesome, awesome human being. Uh, one of my favorite people. We would wake up 7 a.m., sit down and run through everything that needed to get done. Assign everything out and make sure it was happening and sync up at the end of the day, rinse, repeat, go to sleep, do it again the next day. And this went on for months. But on the plus side, when we eventually replaced the FaceWeb binary in the app, the FaceWeb binary at that stage the, was a one-star app. 
And as soon as we replaced it with the upgrade, we became a five-star app overnight. So that was very gratifying. And part of the gratification was also people just saw the speed increase. Mm -hmm. It's just so, so much faster. It was an amazing project to work on. A lot of foundational technologies came out of that. I think Lee Byron, Nick Schrock, and a whole bunch of guys came up with GraphQL to marshal kind of all the resources we needed to get the data out to the app in the right way. A lot of things were created in service of that project that are still around today, powering a lot of tools out there. We got to do a lot of interesting things. And that was the first part of changing the culture to focus more on mobile. The next parts were two-pronged. So there was the top-down version, and then there was the bottom-up version. The top-down version was what Mark did. And the way he did that was he told everybody to bring mobile designs when presenting new projects. He would literally kick teams out of his office if they didn't have a design for mobile. Or if they would say things like, oh, it's just a shrunk-down version of the web. Like He would just lose his shit, and people would have to come back. Word traveled fast, and suddenly everybody got really good at adding an iOS background to whatever screen that they were showing. The bottoms up part was we had to support Facebook's desire to move fast, and we had to do it in a way that was Facebook and allowed people to just add whatever features they wanted to add into the binary, and then still, at the end of the day, be able to have a binary that compiles and passed all the App Store reviews before we sent it over to Apple to be submitted for App Store review. We worked closely with the release engineering team. Christian Dagnito was one of the main people over there, built a whole bunch of tools. And then we would go out and run these release process lectures. It was sort of like a, this is how we run the mobile release process. And we had a whole bunch of slides and we tell people, this is what you need to do. And it was modeled sort of after the web release process. The web release process, everything had to be in by like, I don't know, Monday. And Tuesday is when the entire site would roll out. I think mobile we did like on Thursdays. And so if you had web code, it would actually be live. And then Wednesday, you could test it on the binary. And then Thursday, it would, it would go into the release. And then we tried to be in a cadence of every two or three weeks, like shipping something to Apple. But yeah, that was it. That was the sort of the top down, the bottom ups version. And then the other big change that happened was when we federated out mobile development. In, in many respects, we kept a very small core group of people working on mobile and core mobile infrastructure and actually supporting people and building a whole lot of their features. By the time we got to 2012, this was just was not scaling. And so we federated out the work. We actually gave a bunch of people that worked on the core kind of like rewritten app to the different teams. And then they went off and people started to be responsible for their full stack of their sort of product experience. And I think that was really the key point where they started to accelerate and move really quickly on mobile. And really, that was like the flippening where mobile became a lot more important than web. I remember there was actually, I used to do the mobile onboarding talks for many years mm -hmm. at Facebook. And one of my favorite graphs was the graph of when mobile usage had overtaken web usage. This graph was just phenomenal because you'd put the graph up and it didn't have dates on it. And you'd ask people to guess what is the first day that mobile usage had overtaken web usage? And then what is the last time that web usage was ever going to be higher than mobile usage. In pretty much all cases, it had happened in the past. And it was already a world that web was never going to be bigger than mobile. And it, it took a long time for people to see that. It took a long time for people to understand that and internalize that. I really appreciate the story in there on like how do we actually shift people like from this web mentality to this mobile mentality because you know revisionist history says there was a call to arms everything flipped over to mobile and that's how Facebook won reality was like probably months and months of grinding and then still in record pace like shifting culture into a different direction one of the things you mentioned earlier was your switch from kind of the consumer-oriented part of the company when you went over to Pages. What was your 
what were your first impressions and f- like first realizations when you shifted roles so drastically for it into a different persona? I joined the Pages team and the Pages team was sort of like a little bit of an anomaly. People didn't really know what to do with Pages and there was sort of this feeling that it should be disbanded and absorbed by other teams and it wasn't that important. And I just saw this potential surface which provided so much value to so many people for free, like organic value to people. And the problem with pages is that Facebook changed their mind a lot on like exactly how it would work. And that's fine. You build a product, you don't really know what it's going to do. It grows and goes in one direction. You have to shift and adapt. But things get tricky when people pay money and they have an expectation and they expect to have that expectation for all time. And so the way pages started in 2008 or so, you know, it was business pages. There was Coca-Cola and Starbucks and all the rest. And the narrative that Facebook sold was that you would pay money to advertise your page and to get people to like your page. And then once people liked your page, there was a connection. There was an authentic connection to that business. And then once you had that, you could send them messages. You could just post things and it would show up in their feed. The way they think about it is they have paid money. They have given somebody a movie ticket and they are now sitting in a movie theater watching the screen that this page owner is going to put things on the screen and play things to them. The reality of it is that it's more like Times Square and they have one billboard in Times Square. They can't really do that much to like make them look up organically and like see the messages that they have. This was a huge issue because businesses felt like they were owed the ability to be able to send messages to people whenever they wanted. On the pages team, obviously, we were representing the page admins. So we, we wanted the page admins to get more reach. But at the same time, all of the data showed that the most engaged people want to see a higher percentage of content in their friends. That's what brought them back to the product. That's what brought them back to the site. That's what ultimately gave you somebody that had a great experience and would continue to keep using the product, return to use the product. And so this is when I joined. I joined right around this point when... Facebook had started selling ads to allow posts to show up in feed. And the organic reach, the number of people that you could reach just by posting organically without boosting it, without turning it into an ad, had shrunk dramatically. And because these changes happened at the same time, everybody, and this happens to everybody in the outside of a large company, where, you know, never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence but everybody externally attributed the organic reach changes which killed their pages organic reach Mm -hmm. and this new facebook advertising product which is oh suddenly provides you a way to pay money and get to people more money because you paid money for these people you given you paid for the likes and so this was just a giant clusterfuck people were feeling rightfully so very wronged And everybody had a different idea about it. But at the end of the day, Facebook really needs to prioritize keeping people happy as much as sonas want to just shove messages about their business into the faces of everybody that they know. That's not necessarily going to keep people happy and give people a great experience. And so that was the first kind of like part of my journey on the Pages team. Your onboarding onto the Pages team. Yeah, that was my hazing with the Pages team. It was very educational. It was a great privilege because Pages is mostly used by small businesses. There's tons and tons of people using Pages and deriving tremendous value from it. Anyway, it was a great experience. I think the difference between working on a pure consumer side product and making products where the goal was like keeping people happy to making a product where our goal was keeping people excited about connecting with their audience was a pretty big shift. One of the first big lessons I think that I learned was something that the Pages team had figured out before I got there, which was that the best metric to understand growth and health of the Pages ecosystem was not the likes or the number of views or impressions on a page. That was not the metric. The metric was active page admins. It wasn't also daily active page admins. It was L1 of seven, which is weekly active page admins. Why is that 
important because it's really important what you measure. Looking at the right measurements helps you align teams, create the right kinds of projects, develop the right kinds of incentives, serve the right kind of people. And so focusing on page admins really allowed the team to like develop their reason for being and understanding of what they were doing. And the teams did an amazing job of growing that. Improving the lives of admins to yeah. actually come back and use the product more. I exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If you have somebody that's coming back once a week who's excited about the product or more than once a week, it shows that they're getting value out of it. And if they're getting value out of it, they are able to connect with their audience. People didn't know what pages were for. They really didn't quite understand it. What we did is we sat down and we thought about the broader picture and we boiled it down into like the simplest possible thing. And the simplest possible thing was really like two things. There's really two things that you do with your page and two things that your page gives you. Number one is a presence. And number two is a way to communicate. Presence and communication, that's it. If you fulfill those two goals, you basically fulfilling like the vast majority of what people are looking to do with their page. And of course, you can layer in commerce and all sorts of things, you know, under the communication banner, if you want, or under the presence banner. But that was sort of like the high level that I rallied the team around and managed to get buy-in from Cheryl and Mark and all the rest. So we have your belief that everything is about timing. And clearly, there's a big lesson here around the importance of culture and the importance of moving fast, but still having this ownership and shared responsibility that you take for the product. And then there is this like third lesson that is what you measure is at the core of you doing the right type of work. And if you goal yourself for the wrong thing, you're inherently going to be building the wrong solutions or the wrong features, products, whatever. Are there any other big like mantras or lessons like this that you've either gathered pre-Facebook, at Facebook, or since? I mean, so many, but... I'm here with all the easy questions, by the way. I'll give you one. I'll give you one that I saw. I had a screenshot of this on my phone for many years, and I would send this screenshot to everybody in my team, whenever they started. Obviously, not every single day. but <laughs> Every morning, 7 a.m. <laughs> it's, I'll describe the screenshot to you because that's what we do here on podcasts. It's a painting. Imagine like a black square that's been painted, and there's white paint on top of that. And the white paint on top of that reads, let's make better mistakes tomorrow. It doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you should never make a mistake. But if you can try to make a better mistake the next day, then you've learned. If you're not going to make the same mistakes, then you've learned. If you're going to make the same mistakes over and over again, then I don't know. You just got to do something else. <laughs> you just got to find a different career where you can make new mistakes and learn from them or like zero mistakes and be an accountant. <laughs> Let's make better mistakes tomorrow. Yeah. Nice. I want to go beyond Facebook because coming to the Bay Area with the background that you have, coming from South Africa, going to New York to start your first company, spending time with the eventual founder of Foursquare, which was in the location space, but also just in general, like being a part of that New York startup scene at the time, landing at Facebook, having a life-defining career moment there, or multiple probably. What was it like to leave? It was kind of weird to leave. Mainly, I think it was weird to not have a paycheck. That was the thing I think I was the most anxious about and concerned about because I'd had like, I don't know, two or three jobs continuously since I was 13. And so the idea of not working for a chunk of time was terrifying for me. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it was just like the first time that I was able to take some time off and not necessarily have to worry about money. But also like I very much realized that when you work at a large company and when you work at Facebook in particular, and the product side and the executive leadership at Facebook, I can tell you now is not chilling is not taking it easy like people work really hard there and the first thing i had to do was sort of lose my like fast twitch muscle responses of like responding to every single thing that came up and so i sort of made it my purpose to specifically change how i responded to media 
whether that was social media or email or anything like that. I turned off notifications for pretty much everything that I had. I still, to this day, do not have notifications for email. I think it's one of the worst things you can do is sort of like context switch all the time when you get an interruption from a random source. I spent a couple of years just sort of saying yes to as many things my friends suggested as I could do. I did try to get a job within two to three months, which was a terrible mistake. And anybody who's considering this, by the way, this happens a lot in Silicon Valley. This is the classic person has an exit, tech person leaves a job. I, I don't know, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to like go find yourself, meditate for a while, become incredibly boring and tell people about this through the form of a medium article. I'm talking about people who, I don't know, go to Burning Man and then discover themselves and then write a whole medium post about like exactly why you need to leave your job or do something else. Anyway, whatever. I didn't do any of that. What I ended up doing was exploring. I traveled around Iceland in the winter, which was super fun. I went to the Arctic. I went to Svalbard with a bunch of friends who are really good photographers. I ended up exploring the Lensois Maranhenses, which is the only desert in the world with freshwater lagoons in Brazil, in the north of Brazil. It's phenomenal. And I basically had the opportunity and some time and some money. And I was able to also do a lot of things that did not involve staring at screens. That was one of the things that I think I am most excited about. And I, to this day, keep. I learned how to surf, I learned how to kite surf, I learned how to ski, and just the feeling of being able to be outdoors in the winter without needing to stare at a screen and have so much fun for an entire day. That was something that I never knew was possible. And so I think in terms of like life and experience and really trying to push the boundaries of what I would do if I was in a nine to five job, and so one of the things I did was I almost never organized anything in advance. I would sort of book flights day of to do any crazy trip or like a day before and then I don't know, disappear for like a month, two, three months. And obviously I was very lucky. I had the ability to do that having no children, but I would highly recommend anybody who needs space in their life to take some time and not do the things that they did before. Try to do new things. There's a lot of world out there to do new things with. But, you know, I kept coming back to San Francisco in between because I still technically lived here. And every time I would come back to town, I got excited about making things. I just kept making things. I started making little teas. I love rooibos tea. Grew up drinking it in South Africa like every single day. If you haven't had it, it's phenomenal. I haven't tasted any great varieties over here. And so I buy my rooibos from Amazon. It's a company called Fresh Pack, P-A-K. It's just really standard rooibos in South Africa, but honestly, it just kicks the ass of anything you'll find over here. So I highly recommend it. And I have this long brew method with rooibos. So the interesting thing about rooibos is it, it is antioxidant. It's non-caffeinated. It's really good for you. And it's also not a black tea. With black tea, the longer you steep it, the more bitter and the more caffeine it'll get. With rooibos, the longer you steep it, the sweeter it gets. And so I got this like 24-hour steep method for brewing tea, and I got super excited about it and started making little teas for my friends when I came back. Then there was a period of time when I just really excited about making this spicy nut recipe and then ended up doing that and then going off and doing six, eight months travel. I think this whole process of trying to like figure out what I was doing and trying to like just decompress and de-stress and unwind the knots that I developed while at my tech job at Facebook, it was great. It was really exciting. It had the space, I had the time, I had the luxury. And I started getting interested in like different things. One of the things I did get interested in was food. I actually started investing in a bunch of different companies, most of them tech or crypto type companies and nearly ended up starting my own crypto company and then just realized it was going to be 10 years before there was a possibility to make a real consumer crypto company. This is in 2018. And so just gave up on that. But what I did do is I invested in a few CPG companies and by working with those founders and talking to them, I got really excited about this idea of making physical products, making things that people consume and put into their bodies. Because if you can create something that somebody puts into their body 
that is healthier than an alternative that they are consuming right now. For example, take out 10, 20 grams of sugar or fat out of their diet, they will have significant long-term health benefits. And so you basically have increased you know, lifetime value. So we like to joke at Taika that we focus on CLTB. We like to focus on customer lifetime value because if you can extend somebody's lifetime, then you know you extend the possibility that they're going to be a customer for a much longer period of time. <laughs> you know the things that that got me into coffee and the things that that got me sort of excited about the journey and the path that I'm on. They really started actually before I even went to Facebook. So about I don't know 15, 16 years or so ago, I was living in New York and. I decided to try an experiment. That experiment was taking sugar out of the tea and coffee that I was drinking. That was it. Growing up in South Africa, I don't know what it's like everywhere else in the world, but you know, people take hot beverages and they put five spoons of sugar in and then it's ready to drink. And this has got nothing to do with the quality of the water. Or creamer or yeah. milk. Yeah, exactly. And freeze-dried creamer, even worse. Oh yeah, freeze-dried creamer and instant Nescafe. Anyway, that was just the way. As soon as I decided that I was going to try this experiment and just not put sugar in my tea and coffee, I learned a lot of things very quickly. Number one, New York Daily Coffee is the most disgusting substance known to man. (laughs) Unless you slather it in like sugar and cream and syrup and like all of the crap that they have. But if you choose not to do that, you take your life in your own hands when you're drinking it. And secondly, I learned that there's a lot of great coffee companies out there that harvest their coffee sustainably and ethically. And they actually have like really great tasting coffees that don't need sugar. And these were the third wave coffees, the Stumptowns, the Blue Bottles, like all of these guys. So then I became the guy that everybody knows. The coffee guy. The guy in that circle of friends who lectures you about your brewing habits and exactly where you buy your beans and all of that. Do you own an AeroPress? I, I own three. That um, guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> like, you should get an AeroPress. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of V60? So yeah, I became that guy. And then fast forward like, I don't know, 10 years ago, this is when I was working on that mobile app project at Facebook, like rebuilding the iOS app. At the beginning of that project, I decided it would be a great idea to sustain my energy to just drink a coffee like every hour. And so I was working 18 hour days and let's say drinking seven or eight cups of coffee a day. It was terrible. It was not a good recipe for any sustained productivity or creativity or anything. But I didn't want to give up coffee. I was the coffee guy. How could the coffee guy give up coffee? That's crazy. So I, like any good nerd, went onto the internet and did a bunch of research and discovered adaptogens and functional mushrooms and amino acids and these things that people have been consuming for thousands of years, but just weren't in coffee. And so I had a whole lot of different tins of powders and would mix it into the coffee. And I went down to one coffee a day in my stack and I felt great. I felt phenomenal. And so I've been taking some version of this now every day for like the last 10 years and didn't really know what I was going to do with it until a couple of years ago when I met my co-founder, Kel. Kel is a food scientist, but also one of the best baristas in the world. Grew up in Finland, won a whole bunch of the barista championships over there. Moved out here to start a high-quality instant coffee company and then was onto his next act, which was creating sort of this low-caffeine coffee because he'd had the same problems with caffeine that I did. But as a food scientist, he patented this method for creating this low-caffeine coffee. I met him. Coffee tastes amazing. It was really well-brewed. It was really delicious. But it was missing something. And so I convinced him that we should try add the stack to it. That's when we bonded over this idea of creating Coffee 2.0. It looks like coffee. It actually is incredibly great coffee because most of my friends did not know how to brew great coffee. They didn't know why the beans, you know, the whole story. And we have beans, grind size, temperature of water. Exactly. So if you can take all those problems away from people, give it to them in a can and throw in these adaptogens and functional mushrooms, which are actually going to make you feel very different after you drink one of our drinks. That's the thing that we were really excited about. And so that's, you know, what we got started doing. That was the beginning of Taika. 
You started direct consumer. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. You started in offices. You started in office fridges. I remember this actually. Yeah, totally right. So it's like it means magic in Finnish. We really like that name because we wanted to get across the sort of like magical feeling that you would get from drinking the drinks, as well as this magical feeling that you would get when we delivered really quickly. We thought we were super smart. We were going to bypass the whole direct consumer grocery store route. Instead of going D2C, we called it D2B, direct to business. And so we just sold to micro kitchens at startups in Bay Area. It was a great business. We had like a six-figure business pre-launch just from a bunch of startups. I mean, look, admittedly, some of these startups are worth billions. You know, things were just going great right up until March 2020. COVID showed up and just completely gutted our revenue model and just gutted the business. And that was the point where we woke up and were like, I guess we have to build a real consumer business now. But of course, nothing happens in a straight line. And so we didn't want to take the easy way out and just build a, a straight up direct to consumer business because the coffee that we were making. So we had three different drinks at this stage. We had a black coffee. We had an oat milk latte and we had a macadamia milk latte. There's no sugar in any of them. Zero grams of sugar in the macadamia and the black and oats have some residual sugars, but it was just delicious, super high quality and perishable. You know, we made it in cans and we just didn't do the extra food science work at that stage because we didn't have the chops of making it shelf stable. We also were very opinionated about the taste. And so we believed that it was just not going to taste as good when it was shelf stable. And so we launched DTC officially in May 2020. We had a website, tiger.co. We also had presence in Erewhon, down LA. That was our first real big store. The way we did D2C is we launched New York, San Francisco, and LA simultaneously. We would get orders on the website, and then we would farm them out to like various couriers. Because remember, this is COVID. Everybody's sitting at home. People are bored as fuck. And so we had a giant phone number on the front of our can. That was literally the biggest thing in the can. People would text the phone number and chat to us. We would order on the website. It was never actually text ordering at that stage. We would get the coffee delivered to them, usually in like half an hour. And for early COVID, this was crazy times. People loved it, made an impression. It was also completely unsustainable from a business revenue model. <laughs> so of course. we hired an amazing food scientist, Paolo Beltran, and Paolo basically helped us take this incredibly delicious, perishable coffee, and we created a new platform. So we made our own oat milk, we made our own macadamia milk, we got an 18-month shelf life, and we also figured out a whole bunch of tricks to protect the taste of the coffee. Because we were using like ridiculously high-quality coffees, like single-origin coffees, and so we were very concerned about making sure that it didn't get destroyed in the shelf-stable process. We came out with the new versions in January 2021. At that stage, we had a real DTC business. You know, the next big phase in the business really came towards the end of the year. We think of ourselves more as like a software company that builds platforms that we can then sort of like push products out on. And so the platform we built was this shelf-stable platform with plant milks. We launched an experiment. We were like, let's try to launch matcha and see what happens. We didn't really know much about matcha, but we were opinionated and cared about things that tasted good. And so we ended up using organic ceremonial grade matcha, which is the highest grade that you can get. We released our matcha latte towards the end of the year, and it was a huge success. We got an award from BevNet for best new product for 2021. From the day that we released it, it's outsold pretty much everything else. It outsells everything else about two to one in almost every single account it goes into. It's one of the things that really I'm incredibly proud of making and incredibly proud of the whole team for having created. It really helped us move away from thinking of ourselves as a coffee company. We knew we were never just a coffee company, but the fact that we now were basically a matcha company with some coffee skews definitely started to accelerate that thinking. And then the next kind of like piece in the puzzle was our sparkling yerba mate project. The way we started working the Sparkling Yerba Mate project was, uh, it was a collaboration with a Web3 DAO. Friends with Benefits had been started by a bunch of friends of ours. And so one of the ideas we came up with was making something that was similar to Club Mate, the Berlin Yerba Mate drink, 
tons of sugar, tons of caffeine. We're going to do that for like the Web3 generation. And so we made a Taika version of that. Zero grams of sugar, zero sweeteners. We added in lion's mane, functional mushroom, which is really good for your brain. A little bit of L-theanine. And yeah, released it in 2022 with Friends with Benefits. But that entire collaboration really helped us evolve the vision and the thinking around the company. And so Taika right now, the goal for everything we do is we make drinks that fuel your creativity. I think there's a big difference between productivity and creativity. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of drinks out there that talk about productivity. Productivity to me means work. It means doing more of the same thing at work. So like being a machine, like you can take Adderall and increase your productivity. At a long-term cost eventually. Exactly. What we're interested in is making humans feel good about themselves. At the early days of the company, we kept talking about this concept called stealth health. And Mm -hmm. for us, stealth health was, it tastes absolutely delicious and is secretly healthy for you. But also humans are creative. Everybody is creative. Like this is what we are. We are creative monkeys. We are monkeys that are able to tell stories and share little ideas that are in each other's brains and implant other ideas into each other's brains. And if we can just continue doing that and get better at doing that, then we'll be fantastic. And so if we can make products that help people feel good about themselves as creative humans, then we've won. I think that is a great point to end on. Thank you so much for coming. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening. As I record more of these episodes, I'm excited to invite guests that take their experiences beyond software. If you're interested in future episodes, make sure to subscribe and see you next week when I'll be talking to Jessica Hish.